This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories from India. On the first, we'll see how accepting that dare to spend the night in a graveyard might give you a Star Wars blaster. On the second, we'll meet a king who is way too into dad jokes. The creature is a Norse monster with one weird trick to help him relax after a big meal. It's squeezing himself until he farts. This is Myths and Legends, episode 335. Got your nose. This week, there are two stories of determination from Hindu folklore, both of which come from ancient kingdoms in present-day South India. They don't seem to super concern themselves with history, and as such, seem to be folk or fairy tales. So we'll jump right into the first story, at graduation day for a young woman who has received a gross request from her teacher. Utamohana had done it. Through sheer strength of will, she had risen. She began life as a dancing girl. That's the life she had been born into, but she learned and grew and danced, of course, and she mingled in the society of kings, ministers, and Brahmins. So much so that, in their minds, she became one of them. She hoped her daughter, Chandraleka, would actually be one of them one day. She put her daughter into school with the sons of kings, and Chandraleka crushed it. Because of the way the society worked, she could stay in school with the others until she reached maturity. But she barely needed that. In the time it took others to get up to speed, Chandraleka had mastered it all. Then, the time came. She would say goodbye to her teacher, pay her tuition, and marry. This was the life that had been planned for her. This was the dream of her mother. Why not all three? Right here? The teacher grinned. Chandraleka said, uh, what? The teacher pointed to the chests of gold Chandraleka had brought from her mother. All that was nice, of course, but he was the guru of kings and ministers and all that. What did he need money for? Now, he needed a wife. Sundralega said that, um, let's pretend that was a non sequitur, because the relationship between a teacher and his student was like a father and daughter. He was so old, and uh, frankly, this was really gross, if that's what he meant, but she was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. This was a test of character. He wouldn't actually... Then he put his hand on her knee. She grimaced and moved away. This wasn't a test. He grew serious. Look, he knew Chandraleka's mother was going to be looking for a match. And soon. And he knew that the woman's mother would be ambitious. I mean, look at all she had done with her life. Chandraleka, oh, she wanted her mother to be happy, right? He pointed to himself. This right here? This was as good as it gets. Chandraleka said that that. She could hardly believe that was the case. The teacher cut her off. No, he was telling her. He was as good as it got for her. He had connections. He would make sure of it. She said that couldn't be true. The teacher put on a look of mock concern. Oh, the poor girl. To be possessed by a demon at such a crucial time? Chandralika said that that wasn't fair. The teacher smiled. 
Well, that was the only explanation for him. Oof, it would be a shame if all the young men in the city learned that. Chandralika rose, gritting her teeth and clenching her fists. She ordered her servants burying the gold to follow her. They were leaving. Good, Chandralika's mother said when her daughter returned home. She was as proud of her daughter as she was repulsed by the teacher, taking advantage of his position like that. Still, for Chandralika, it would be fine. But it was not fine. The mother's plans for her daughter were derailed when, one by one, the respected families stopped returning her messages. The mother tried to stay optimistic for Chandralika, but this was bad. Even her fallbacks fallbacks wouldn't approach a family with a demon-possessed daughter. A year passed like this, with the mother and daughter finding the city colder and colder toward them. Until there was a knock at the door one day. The mother welcomed the sage in. It was a brief conversation. He said he couldn't help in the event of rumors, but he could help when it came to demons. Chandralika pinched the bridge of her nose after the sage left. But she wasn't possessed by a demon. Why did she have to pretend like she was? The mother said it wasn't fair. She knew. Her whole life she had fought against the world that told her she didn't deserve what she had. She had hoped to save her daughter from that, but it just arrived in a different form. All this would allow her to move on. And that was the most important thing. Chandra like aside, okay, what did she have to do? Apparently, the solution was dancing in the crematory ground for the Demon King. What? That is so creepy! Chandralika cried. The mother raised her palms. She knew, but yeah, new moon, midnight. The Shamashan, the crematory grounds where bodies are burned. Demons, basically it was a greatest hits of ghost stories. Chandralika rolled her eyes. Okay, what did she need to bring? Chandralika laid there in the dark, next to her lantern. There was nothing to be scared of. No demons, uh, probably. Since everyone else believed there was, though, she just had to hang out in the crematory grounds until dawn and come back cured. Because, well, she had left cured. Her eyes adjusted to the point where the night sky seemed bright, and she was on the verge of sleep when she heard them. Footsteps. Voices. She shot up and scrambled. She didn't want to put out the lantern for fear of not being able to light it again. She dumped out the basket full of the offerings for the demon king or whatever and covered the lantern. She jumped into a nearby hole and peeked out. Eight men, all walking along, holding lanterns of their own. Hey guys, circle up, one of them said. The rest turned to face him. I just want to say, I love robbing the people of the city with you guys. They looked at him with a smile. Aw, yeah, I'm just, I wake up each afternoon and I'm excited to go to work, you know? Like, whose livelihood are we going to steal tonight? What despair are we going to bring to the people just trying to get by? I, you know, I, I don't really have a point with all this. Just sometimes you need to speak out and say, hey, I appreciate you. The leader wiped a tear from his eye. All right, gents, let's hide our ill-gotten gains and treasure chests here in the crematory grounds where no one will look for them. 
As the men got started, another one looked to the leader. What do we do with a thunderbolt again? Ah, yes, the conical. Uh, another one spoke up. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm new. Is that the magical item that came to us from the heavens that allows us to bore through anything up to solid stone immediately and silently? Sorry, once again. First night, just transferred in. Well, we are excited to have you aboard. Yep, that will be the same, the leader said. It's gross, but they shoved it in the dung pile each night. Last place someone would go looking for it, and there was a crunch. A crunch because, in Chandralika's hole, the basket caught being on top of the lantern. She kicked it over and blew it out. There was silence from the group of eight. What was that? She heard. Here, I'll give you a little demonstration of the tool, another voice said. There was a moment of silence, and then Chandralika felt it. She had to keep herself from screaming out, and it was only because she moved at a fortuitous moment that she even survived. Instead of boring a hole straight through her chest, it only took out a chunk of her side. Eh, it was underground, she heard. Probably a fox or something. All right, the treasure's buried. Everyone, tomorrow is a day off. No robbing. Work-life balance, guys. Mental health care is important, too. When she heard them leave, Chandra Lake allowed herself a groan and took her hand away, slick with blood. Ow. She wasn't dead yet, though, and it seemed like she would be okay. She dragged herself from the hole and staggered home to get a cart. Ointments for sale. The best ointments to cure new wounds, especially circular ones. Please buy my ointment, the ointment seller cried out in the market. Chandralika's servant's ears pricked up. She found the ointment seller. Her mistress had returned the night before with a stinky rod and ushered all the servants out of the house so she and her mother could move some boxes into her room. When she helped Chandralika dress that morning, she noticed the wound on her side and worried that it would begin to fester. So she went out searching for ointment. She was a great servant. The ointment seller said to choose between the best type of ointment, he needed to know about the wound. The servant girl said that it was like a half moon right out of her side. It was when she went to expel her demons in the crematory grounds the previous night. The ointment seller produced a vial. For such a particular wound, he would have to treat her himself. He asked the servant to lead the way. The ointment seller nodded to a man selling wares at his cart, and he put up the clothes sign. Chandralika's servant didn't see the six more people emerge from the street behind her. Some of them were wearing fake mustaches on their beards. Others were dressed as doctors, mystics, merchants. One guy was in a basket with eye holes cut out of it. They went to a costume shop earlier and really just made a fun morning out of it. Chandralika immediately recognized the lead thief in the guise of the ointment seller. The lead thief, the ointment seller, recognized the wound. He had one just like it from when he was learning how to use the boring rod. The ointment would help heal her. Didn't really make much of a difference, though, because that night, she was going to die. A lot of dirty chests in your room here. The ointment seller glanced over at the eight chests. Going for like a graveyard treasure hunter chic thing? Chandra Laika looked at the ointment seller. Oh, he was into interior design? I dabble, the ointment seller shrugged. All right, she should be good to go. That wound would heal up real well. She thanked the man and the servant saw him out. She glanced out the window 
and a doctor, mystic, merchant, brahmin, and a basket with eyes all made their way down the street, following the ointment merchant. We'll see what the thieves have in store for Chandraleka, and what she has in store for them, but that will be right after this. She's asleep, Chandraleka heard, because she wasn't. There were eight men in her room. Should we wake her up? Hand on her mouth, a knife to her throat, classic style, one of the thieves said. Oh, hey, no bad ideas, and I respect the courage it took to speak up. Please continue to do so. But we can't do that. I did it once, and it led to a whole nasty struggle. Last thing we want is guards to come, the leader said. He pointed to the chests. Four of them could handle chests, while the other four would hoist the cot. They would take her out into the woods, and that way they could really punish her. So, that's what happened. Chandraleka laid there, feigning sleep, at least until they were out of the village. She knew the moment the servants returned with the ointment vendor that they would be back. She couldn't put her mother in danger, so she had stashed a dagger under her pillow. If they weren't going to remove her from the house, she was going to take as many of them with her with the hope that she would either win or die, keeping her mother out of it entirely. With Chandralika dead, there wouldn't be any reason to punish her mom further. She was actually relieved, then, when she felt the cot she was on rise. She bounced with each step, out of the room, and then out of the village. Hey, does it feel like it's getting heavier? One of the thieves on a leg of the cot said to another. Yeah, it's called fatigue. Keep it up, we're almost there. You can do it, the other thief replied. Hey. You two, talking amongst yourselves, encouraging each other to press on despite hardship, the leader called back and then smiled. Keep it up. The first thief wasn't wrong, though. It actually was getting heavier. That afternoon, Chandralika had been busy. In addition to the dagger, she gathered a few other things she thought she might need. And she also did some calculations. Exactly how many mangoes she needed to replace her body weight. As soon as she reached the correct number, she didn't hesitate. She snatched the bag beneath her pillow, found a low-hanging vine, and pulled herself up noiselessly. Wow, now it feels better. She heard the thief's voice begin trailing off in the forest. Yeah, second wind, see? You can do it. By the time she found a safe spot in the trees, it was nearly morning. She was exhausted, and she knew the thieves would be combing the jungle. She would wait until dusk and try to sneak home and warn her mother. But the thieves were more persistent than she realized, probably because she had replaced all the gold in the chests with rocks of equal weight. They wouldn't attack her mother during the daytime. Even with the reversal in fortune of the past year, her mother was still well-connected. But Chandralika had a problem. She woke to find one thief in particular climbing the tree in which she slept. Hey there, she said, descending the tree. The man froze. My dear husband, what are you doing out here? The thief cocked his head. Husband? She said, yeah. Is that something he wanted? He looked her over. He was very confused, but yes. Yes, he very much did. She smiled and walked forward, brushing his hair back. Good. She had a home not far from this place, where they could enjoy each other's company all night long. Then she gasped and pointed behind him. When he turned, 
She winced, pressed the boring tool into his head, and he instantly dropped to the ground. Chandraleka ran home. She found her mother safe. Chandraleka told her everything, and the mother said that they wouldn't run. She hadn't built a life here to be scared off by thieves. She told her daughter to rest that night. Tomorrow, they would go out for some iron plating. They were going to home alone this place. As the sixth bandit lost his nose from Chandralika's boring tool, and the mother blew chili pepper dust into the gaping wound, the mother and daughter were, frankly, a little disappointed. They had a whole night planned, where each trap was more fiendish and dangerous than the last, but these guys all fell for the first trap. The women had lined the walls with iron plates and barred the door, so there would only be one way in. And after a few tries, the thieves found it. The mother and daughter saw the wall begin to crumble until it was big enough for a head. Chandraleka was waiting on one side with the boring tool, and as soon as the nose emerged from the wall, she obliterated it with the magical tool. Mom blew chili pepper into it, as if having it destroyed wasn't bad enough, and the thief ran off screaming. They moved to the next trap when another thief looked in the hole. Robbery pro tip. If your buddy puts his head in a hole and immediately emerges missing a nose with a wound and eyes full of ground hot peppers, maybe don't do that exact thing. And if two guys end up the exact way, maybe don't follow their lead. And so on, until all seven were missing their noses. As they ran off back into the forest, the mother and daughter could not believe that worked. They were gone, and they didn't come back. Days passed, and the mother and daughter repaired the wall. They kept watch at night and paid attention in the markets and on the paths outside the village, but yeah, no one. And their fortunes reversed. Word got around that Chandraleka had exercised her demons in the ritual a few nights back. It was all good now. She had young men coming around, and her mother was optimistic. Mother and daughter even started to get dancing jobs again. A dancing job. In the forest, Chandraleka looked at the servant. He had a nose, but she was willing to bet the men who hired him didn't. He said, yeah, he knew it was odd, but his employer was an eccentric recluse and would pay Chandraleka a year's worth of wages for one night. The mother watched in anxiety, but Chandraleka only smiled. Of course, she would be more than happy to do it. You would? The mother reeled. Chandraleka said yes. It would never stop. They had shown that, as long as they lived, they would keep coming after her. Now, every time they looked at their reflection, they had a reminder of her. She turned to her mother. She was doing this so that they would be safe forever. She rose. Now, you can't have a dance without a band, right? Her mother. She knew some people, didn't she? I mean, we could kill her now. She's completely in our power, the second in command of the thieves said. Or we could enjoy a dance, the thief leader said. 
Remember their talk? Self-care was important, and they had a time of it trying to kill this young woman. All right, they would treat themselves to a show and then exact terrible vengeance against this girl. Chandra Lake started her dancing and then raised her hand to cue the music, and the drum beats were discordant. The woodwinds shrill and sharp. The bandit leader winced. What was this? As the band, who, yeah, did look surprisingly jacked now that the thieves were thinking about it, removed their swords and daggers from their instruments, the thieves rose, hands on their own weapons, but with the pew-pew of Chandralika's boring tool, they were forced to unhand their weapons when she literally took their hands off. She would save the judgment on their lives for the prince. The rest of the bandit's followers fell to the prince's army, who had been lying in wait for the signal from the terrible, terrible music. The band wasn't full of musicians, but soldiers that Chandralika had handpicked earlier that day when she brought her plan before the prince to wipe out the gang of thieves that had been plaguing the area. As Chandralika walked next to the prince on the way home, listening to the cries of the thieves behind them, they both slowed to make the walk longer. That whole day, they really enjoyed the time spent in each other's company. The prince remarked that he didn't want it to end. Chandralika said she didn't either, but it had to. They came from different worlds. It couldn't work. The prince said, well, why not? Just because things had always been a certain way doesn't mean they had to stay that way. The prince said he had fallen in love with her and he didn't care where she came from. She was smart, driven, and he could talk to her for days. He wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. He asked her to marry him and unlike the proposal that opened the story, she accepted. Seriously? That's what he's doing? The prince was grossed out when he learned what the teacher the man who had been his own teacher as well, was doing. The teacher was publicly shamed and never taught a student again. Just kidding. He was quietly exiled to some far-off province where he absolutely would do the same thing again, but with less oversight. Still, Chandralika decided to take victories where she could get them. Her mother attended her wedding to the prince, the wedding for her daughter, the new queen who had overcome so much. We'll jump into the next story. This one about a princess who doesn't want to be a princess, but that will be right after this. Hey, so I was thinking, you live in just the worst situation. Squalor, your hut barely has a roof and you can't keep out the elements. You get sick all the time. Your life is just the worst the king said to the fakir the man said thank you the king said he was not being complimentary he was going to give the man a princess as a servant though one of my daughters that sound nice the king didn't really care about the answer the fakir said uh yes he guessed he didn't really have the accommodations for a princess the house was a dirt hut with one bed two old cooking pots, an earthen jar for water. It wasn't comfortable at all. The king smirked. All the better. He said between him, the fakir, and literally anyone with eyes or a modicum of common sense, this was a punishment. The girl said she wanted to make her own fortune if she could. <laughs> could the fakir believe that? Instead of relying on the family's wealth, she wants to make her own way in the world? 
The fakir said he thought hard work and struggle were admirable. The king looked at his hut and laughed. Yeah, well, I mean, he hoped the fakir thought that. The princess arrived and waited for her father to leave. The fakir bowed, but she waved off all that. She looked around the house. Did the man have any money? The fakir said that he was an ascetic, so he didn't place much importance on wealth, but yeah, he thought he had a penny around here somewhere. Imani, the princess, inspected the penny he found eventually. This would do. She told him to go borrow a spinning wheel and loom. She was going to go shopping. The story was recorded by British guys, so it's in their currency. It said that she returned with a farthing, a quarter of a penny's worth of oil, and three farthings of flax. The oil was a kindness. The fakir had a leg that gave him problems, and she used the oil to massage him and give him some relief. Then she got to work. She spun all night. In the morning, she had a beautiful thread. By the end of the next day, they had a silver cloth. She handed it to the fakir, telling him to take it to the market and sell the cloth while she rested. He asked, for how much? She held up her fingers. Two gold pieces. The king looked at the manor. Wow, nice. The way this was shaping up, it would be second only to his palace. He saw that the workers were on site and receiving orders from someone. He decided to take a big gulp of water and go introduce himself to the man who would own this vast and beautiful estate. I I suppose you're going to help him clean up, Imani said to her father. When her father entered her house and did a spit take all over one of her servants, he said, his daughter built this manor? She... She was as rich as him? Imani said yes, through hard work each day and night, and kindness to the man who gave her the chance. The fakir, she did it. She made her own fortune. So she and the fakir lived in the manor. Imani still worked the loom and spinning wheel, but was known as a true artisan, and she could charge whatever she wanted for her creations. Hey, your dad is going on a trip. A messenger knocked at the door a few months later. Imani was perplexed. Hey, Fakir, are you going on a trip? The Fakir hobbled up. No, why? The messenger said. Imani's father, the king, was going on a trip. Imani grimaced. Oh, him. Just then, one of Imani's servants walked up with a request. He needed help untangling his necklace. The messenger at the door said the king was taking a trip and wanted to know if Amani wanted anything, in particular from the foreign city he was visiting. Amani's older sister, Gupti, asked for a ruby necklace, so, you know, that's kind of the general area of what everybody's asking for. The servant kept tugging at Amani's boss. Amani, 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 patience, please. Can't you see I'm with someone? Amani said to the servant. The messenger from her father bowed and left. He wasn't sure you could buy that, but whatever. Imani turned back, I'm sorry, what were you saying? But the messenger was gone. Give me patience. I need patience. The king bellowed in the market of the foreign city. The people laughed, yeah, he did. The king was the talk of the city mainly that they should all avoid the king screaming in the city, 
The story eventually reached the ears of their king, Subar Khan. He called the king into his quarters. Sorry for causing a scene, it's just, I have this daughter. She's my younger one and she's, I mean, frankly, she's awesome. I cast her out, but she rose even higher. She's brilliant, kind, beautiful, hardworking. Subar Khan, the king of Dur, said it might seem odd, but he believed that this meeting was fated. His name actually meant patience. He went to his own chest and pulled out a small casket, a box. He removed a fan from his coat and put it in the box and handed the box to the king. Here is the box. It has no lock or key, but will open to the touch of the person who needs its contents. Whoever opens it will obtain patience. Subar Khan smiled and then frowned. I, I can't open it, the king said, straining. Subar Khan said seriously, they, were, they just went over this. He should just, just give it to Amani, okay? Back home, months later, Amani looked at the box. What, what was this? What you asked for, I guess? The messenger shrugged. Amani said she didn't ask for anything. Okay, whatever, just tell the king she said thank you. She brought the box inside and handed it off to the fakir. Like her biological dad, her adoptive dad couldn't open it either. He handed it back to Amani and went to bed. It opened easily for Amani, and she saw a fan. It wasn't three movements of the fan before Subar Khan popped into existence before her eyes. Uh, hi? Strange man who entered my house? He smirked. Subar Khan, patience is yours, Subar Khan said. Amani said, um, okay? Thank you? Subar Khan said, Subar Khan patience because because my name means patience and you asked for patience he waited huh uh, funny stuff right she said people kept saying she asked for that but she had no memory of it she was like yelling at a servant maybe they misheard her super Khan said seriously Imani nodded yeah his shoulders slumped oh well I mean whew she had no idea how long he waited for someone to come yelling in the market for patience. And this played better and made much more sense if she asked for patience because his name, your name means patience. Yeah, I got it, Amani said. Subar Khan pointed to the fan. The box and the fan were magic. Amani crossed her arms. Really? The fan that summoned a human to her presence immediately and the box that only she could open were magic, he said? He said, okay, she didn't need to be like that. He shook his head. This, this was a little awkward. Then he pointed to an ornate chess set. Oh, did Amani play? Hey, Super Khan! The fakir said to Subar Khan six months later when Amani summoned Subar Khan to their house. I'm going to beat you in chess one of these days, old man. Subar Khan laughed. You know what you need? The fakir smiled. You need to have patience. Subar Khan bellowed, this guy, this guy got it. Despite the awkwardness of their first meeting, Subar Khan and Amani stayed up talking and playing chess that night. And for many nights after, she introduced Subar Khan to the fakir and the three got on well. Subar Khan became something of a regular fixture in their house, with Amani and the Fakir giving him his own room to sleep in when he stayed too long, despite 
him literally being able to teleport home in an instant. Word spread around town, chiefly from the servants, that Amani, the princess, had a night visitor, a handsome and powerful king that appreciated beating a good dad joke to death. Word traveled, eventually, to Kupti. I'm sorry, who are you again? The king said. Kupti said that she was his daughter, his firstborn daughter. The king said, Kupti, that's right. Sorry, it's just, Imani really became the star of the show, huh? What have you done other than ask for stuff? Kupti's eyes widened. The king looked at her, really? She came here to ask for something. How out of character. Kupti said, well, she was a princess and the firstborn. It was time that she was married. The king rolled his eyes. Ugh, do I have to do everything? Why can't you summon a magical suitor like your sister? And yes, I know. They're chaperoned by the fakir. It's all copacetic. Kupti stomped off in a rage. so weird that you've lived in your own mansion for a year and a half now and I've never visited, Kupti said to Amani, making straight for what Amani and the Fakir called the king's room, for no particular reason. As if on cue, Amani was called away by a messenger at the door, because it was on cue, and Kupti walked into the room, unobserved. She pulled back the blanket of the bed and sprinkled glass, poisoned shards of glass, on the bed below. That was weird, it was... No one. The messenger just ran off when I went to the door, Amani said. And Kupti said, oh, that, that was so weird. Well, she had to go. Amani said she just got there, but Kupti was already on her way out. Amani woke up late after a long night, spent talking and playing with Super Khan. Then she realized that she hadn't sent him home. It was way too late. She grabbed the fan and found him laying in bed, still sleeping, barely moving. She waved the fan to send him home. That night, though, when she wanted to see him, he didn't arrive. She waved the fan and nothing. The fakir looked at it. Was it broken? Amani waved it again. Nothing. Hmm. She, she didn't know. The only one who knew what happened was, of course, Kupti. But she only watched her sister's despair and self-satisfied victory. Then, one day, Imani was gone. Hey, brother, Imani heard a week later out in the jungle. What's up? Another voice said. Imani peeked through the trees and saw two monkeys talking to one another. Huh. She guessed that was something that happened out here and we shouldn't dwell on it and just move on. I just came from Durr, you hear? One monkey said to the other. No, what's up? The king is dying. I asked the birds because the birds see all and they said it was Kupti, the princess of uh, that other kingdom. She put poisoned glass on his bed. Brutal, the monkey shook his head. Poisoned glass, the worst type of glass. It was a bummer for sure. Super Khan was really great at slaying leopards and creatures that, quote, ought not to be allowed to live. Also a bummer that humans didn't know that the berries on this particular tree, the one they were sitting in, could cure Super Khan if steeped in water. Humans, right? They're so ridiculous. They shut themselves up in their stuffy little houses in their cramped cities, 
They could be living in these nice, airy trees and know about this stuff. Yeah, and die at 35 and get eaten by tigers, Imani muttered as the monkey swung off to go find food. She picked the berries and began the long walk to Durr. Imani winced when she saw the man she loved. She didn't even recognize him. Imani, still in the disguise of a male fakir because she didn't need any more problems traveling on the road, demanded the room. And after her treatment, Super Khan recovered quickly. He sat up. There was something strange about this young doctor. Super Khan shook his head. He would give the doctor anything, up to half his kingdom, for saving him. That's something kings say irresponsibly, right? Imani smiled. She only wanted one thing, his signet ring. He said, okay, weird. He plucked the ring from his finger and placed it in her hand. She rose and left. A few days later, when she reached home, Imani waved the fan and Super Khan appeared. She tapped her foot. Where had he been? He said she would never believe it. He fell deadly ill. It was only because of this young fakir that he survived. The guy was weird too because he just wanted Super Khan's signet ring. Imani opened her hand. This ring? Super Khan immediately put it together and frowned. He snatched the fan from her hand and said she would never summon him again. Imani was confused. Why not? He said, because I love you and I don't want to leave your side. He said he wouldn't be going back to Dur, his kingdom, without her as his wife and the fakir as his father. So they did. She returned to the land of Dur, this time as its queen, and Imani and Super Khan lived happily ever after. Both of these stories kind of ended abruptly, and though it's a bit cliche that both stories ended in weddings for their protagonists who are women, it's cliche for a reason, because it does happen a lot in stories. Like Chandralekha, though, we'll take the victories where we can, in these stories of women who don't give up in the face of overwhelming adversity. Speaking of women, you know who loves women? Pigsy from Journey to the West. Next week, it's Monk Xuanzang's wedding day, a burden Pigsy would be more than willing to bear, and he demonstrates this by tearing his own shirt off way too many times. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site and on Apple Podcasts. For less than the price of a shrimp neck pillow, a pillow that looks like a cooked shrimp, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that aren't, according to reviews, too tight and won't make you feel like you're being strangled by a weak sea creature. Check out mythpodcast.com membership or find the show on Apple Podcasts. Creature this week is the gulan from Sweden. Now, the gulan is a foodie in the way that a garbage disposal or a compost pile is a foodie. It enjoys food, one assumes. It consumes anything living, dead, fresh, rotten, whatever's in front of it, it will eat. It also apparently goes by the name Jerf. It's kind of like Jeff and Jerk, just together, Jerf. Kind of undercuts its terrifying nature but maybe it's really trying to make jerf a thing. It's said to be something between a lion and a hyena, so it could play like most parts in The Lion King. 
and it has a fox's tail and super sharp claws. Unlike me, whenever I eat too much, it doesn't wallow in pain and regret, but does something about it. It finds a narrow spot between two trees and just forces its body through. One source I found said that it forces the, quote, gassy buildup out the other side, which is a very roundabout and classy way of saying that it farts and it feels better. We get real on this podcast. Anyway, having learned precisely nothing, it then gets back to eating. I have not played God of War Ragnarok yet, but apparently this creature makes an appearance in Vanaheim in that game. They probably left out the farts. The time to confront this creature and not get turned into farts is when it's treating its body like a tube of toothpaste. Though people chronicling the creature say it should never be eaten. That being said, if you're looking for an aphrodisiac, apparently this creature's blood does the trick and would be mixed with honey at weddings. Because, you know, nothing says ooh-la-la more than the blood of a sentient, farting garbage disposal mixed in with your wine. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.